0: Five, four, three, two, one. Cue music. This is Movies First with Alex First. A slow moving family drama about lost, interconnected people trying to navigate their lives. Angst is the common thread in both sides of the blade. Divorcee and ex prisoner Jean, Vincent Linden, has been with Sarah Juliet Benoche for nine years. He's a former rugby player. Who retired as a result of injury? He has a 15 year old son who's being brought up by Jean's mum, and he's proving to be quite a handful. The pair live three hours from Paris, where Jean used to live. Sarah is a radio host. Jean and Sarah are married and very much in love, if still somewhat insecure in that love. They're constantly asking for acclamation. Their relationship is about to be sorely tested when Jean goes into business with Sarah's former romantic partner, Francois, Gregory Collin. Francois has formed an agency to recruit junior football talent at Jean's Say So. Even a decade on from when Francois left her, Sarah still holds a torch for him. And when he sets eyes upon her again, it's evident the spark is still there. Both Sides of the Blade becomes a messy love triangle where each of the trio feels they are in the right and are being sold short. Written by Christine Angot and Claire Dennis, based on Angot's book and directed by Dennis, the movie is an intriguing look at the human psyche. We all have our own take on matters, whether or not that correlates with others' views. That goes to the heart of one's definition of truth. Is truth reality or open to interpretation? Jean often doesn't give clear answers or talks around issues. Francois is a narcissist, while Sarah somehow thinks she can satisfy both men when clearly she can't. Benoche and Lyndon are the main players in this production, and they acquit themselves well. Their characters are well-formed, their vulnerabilities exposed. I was somewhat concerned that the story took a long time to develop. The script could readily have been tightened to have heightened the drama. That would also have strengthened audience involvement. Still, both sides of the blade manages to make its mark, and it scores a 7 out of 10. You're listening to Movies First. For more, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Looking every bit like a 10-year-old girl, Lena, played by Isabel Furman is in fact 31, and the most dangerous patient in an Estonian psychiatric institution. Particularly devious, manipulative and opportunistic, she's also deadly. So it is that she escapes from the facility and poses as the long-lost young daughter named Esther of a wealthy American family. Reunited after four years, Father Alan Albright, played by Rossif Sutherland, a gifted artist who lost his mojo when his daughter disappeared, is particularly ecstatic. They bond. But not so the mother, Tricia, Julia Stiles, nor their 16-year-old son, Gunnar, Matthew Finlan. Lena tries to keep up the charade, but there are cracks in the stories that she weaves. Also suspicious is the policeman, Detective Donan, played by Hiro Kanagawa, who handled Esther's disappearance. Of course, Lena's sinister impulses have not dissipated. When she acts upon those, a significant twist occurs. For all is not as it seems. It appears that Lena isn't the only one hiding a dark secret. Orphan First Kill is better than I imagined it would be. It's an intriguing, well-woven horror with surprises aplenty. So, plaudits to the scriptwriter David Coggershaw, who worked on a story from David Leslie Johnson-McGoldrick and Alex Mace. Director William Brent Bell ensures there's never a dull moment, with action unfolding at a decent clip. I appreciated Isabel Furman's performance as Evil Incarnate. She certainly acts the part, the demonic tag seemingly sitting comfortably on her shoulders. The other standout was Julia Stiles as the society wife with decided smarts of her own. The game that she and Lena play is mighty dangerous and fun to watch. The diverse setting in this movie provides alluring light and shade. Regardless, the constant is the inherent darkness in the lead character. Coming 13 years after Isabel Furman assumed the centrepiece role in Orphan, both she and this prequel have bite. Orphan, first kill, scores a seven and a half out of ten. Movies First with Alex First. A deceptively clever period crime drama, the outfit is a slow burn mesmeriser. Set in Chicago in 1956, all the action takes place at the premises of a bespoke tailor. Leonard, Mark Rylance, is a well-spoken, nondescript British cutter who takes great pride and pleasure in his work. His narrative about what goes into making a suit underlines the piece. Rolls of fabric, tape, chalk and cutter's shears are prominent throughout. The shop employs a receptionist, Mabel Zoe Deutsch, who dreams of travelling to Europe. While she and Leonard go about their business, The place is a front for Irish mob boss Roy Boyle, Simon Russell Beale. He uses the premises as a stash house for dirty money. Boyle's son Richie, Dylan O'Brien, and his chief enforcer Francis, Johnny Flynn, visit the shop daily. Richie's nonplussed that he has to play second fiddle to Francis, who once put his life on the line for Boyle. One day the pair make their way into the place in desperation. Richie having just been shot in the abdomen. It's only some deft craftsmanship from Leonard that helped save him. Mind you, it's all downhill thereafter, given there's a stool pigeon in their midst who's ratted them out. Behind the goings-on is a turf war, but the primary focus is on the tailor and, to a lesser extent, the receptionist, whose lives are on the line. Written by Graham Moore, who was responsible for the Imitation Game, and Jonathan McLean, and directed by Moore, the outfit features a whip-smart script. Its minimalist setting gives it the feel of a play. I could well see the action unfolding on stage. Much of the credit in terms of the movie's success lies in the measured performance of Mark Rylance as the unflappable cutter. Leonard's ability to remain calm under pressure and to read people in delicate situations is what elevates the outfit above the ordinary. Rylance displays spectacular restraint inhabiting Leonard's razor-sharp mind. I also appreciated the feistiness in Zoe Deutsch. She comes across as a character with much life to live, while Leonard is someone who's been there and done that. As Francis, Johnny Flynn is mercenary, while Dylan O'Brien, playing opposite him as Richie, is a hothead still wet behind the ears. Clearly, nothing is as it first appears in the outfit. We're all the better off for that fact as a series of spectacular reveals late in the piece really sets the cat amongst the pigeons. There's much to appreciate and savour in this picture if you stick with it. The outfit scores an 8 out of 10. Movies First with Alex First. I believe it was the highest-grossing film of 1992, namely Aladdin, that gave us the story of the genie in a lamp. Fast forward 30 years, and now you have the tale of a gin in a bottle. Dr Alethea Binney, played by Tilda Swinton, is a fated scholarly storyteller, a creature of reason, who's having vivid and alarming visions. On a conference in Istanbul, she purchases an old misshapen bottle but when she tries to clean it, something extraordinary happens. Her rubbing triggers the appearance of a jinn who's been trapped inside for a great many years. He proceeds to relay to her how on three separate occasions after he was freed, forces conspired to see him trapped again. These fantastic tales involve love, war and betrayal. To remain free, the jinn implores Alethea to make three wishes. Mind you, in so doing, there are rules. For instance, Alethea cannot wish for eternal life. She's suspicious she may be being taken on a ride, but the more she hears, the stronger her connection to the djinn. Still, there are sounds in this modern world that don't sit comfortably with him. 3,000 years of longing is an engaging, if decidedly far-fetched, fantasy about connection. It's proof positive that Tilda Swinton has credibility even when she plays a creative, if lonely, soul in a story of make-believe. Throughout, she maintains the intelligent visage that's her hallmark. Idris Elba adds big-ticket gravitas as the djinn, who weaves many a colourful story. The picture painted is that of an adult fairy tale. Co-writer with Augusta Gore and director George Miller is, of course, quite at home with the genre. He was responsible for Babe and Happy Feet, not to overlook Mad Max. Miller and Gore have certainly let their imaginations wander. Their writing is based on a short story, The Gin in the Nightingale's Eye by A.S. Byatt. The picture is colourful throughout, the production designed by Roger Ford being a feature. Visual effects, too, are allowed to flourish with plenty to admire. So, 3,000 Years of Longing is a pleasant, Lavish distraction. It scores a 7 out of 10. You're listening to Movies First with Alex First. Just what's going on? That question characterises the start of this whimsical family drama written and directed by Pana Panahi, who makes his feature film Daboo. We're on a cross country road trip in Iran with a mother, father, elder son, and younger son. Where we're going is not clear. What we can say is that there are many stops along the way. Dad, Muhammad Hassan Manjuni, has a broken leg and is on crutches. Apparently, it's been that way for five months. The elder son, Amin Simiar, who's at least 20, is at the wheel and says very little. In fact, he's not very expressive, although his driving skills are constantly being questioned by his father. The younger son, Rayan Salak, perhaps aged four or five, is his antithesis, and energise a bunny who can't stop talking or sit still. The one instruction all have been given is not to bring any mobile phones, and yet Youngster has smuggled one into the car. Now he's distraught that his mother is making sure that the phone is buried. Also in the car with them is a sick dog that Dad rescued and that the boy is attached to. He doesn't realise that the trip is really about taking his brother to a point where smugglers have been paid to take the latter across the border. To that end, his parents have sold their house to enable that to happen. While mum, Pantia Panahiha, understands why her eldest has to do what he's about to do, she's highly emotional about it. This is a family that hurls insults at one another and yet cares deeply for each other. In the case of the parents, much of their thoughts and feelings are expressed in their eyes. There's a sense of yearning that accompanies this film. We long to learn more about the characters. Much is left unsaid, and it's up to each of us to interpret and read between the lines. What struck me immediately was the naturalistic performances. Muhammad Hassan Manjuni brings a comic gruffness to his role. Pantia Panahija is empathetic and caring, a scene late in the piece where a single teardrop forms in the corner of her left eye speaks volumes. The real revelation for me was Rayan Sallak. What a performance, what a find. Lively, precocious, immensely talented. Compliments too to the cinematographer Amin Jafari, who captures the expressions and landscapes magnificently. A rocky mountain range early on is particularly appealing and evocative. As we reach the film's conclusion, there's even a sequence that's a nod to Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. That occurs as the father's having a conversation with his son about the comic book hero Batman. Slow-moving that it is, Panahar Panahi has crafted a thoughtful and engaging work which thrusts him onto the world stage as a filmmaker to be watched. Hit the Road scores an eight Out of 10. You're listening to Movies First. For more, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. From Babette's Feast to Big Night, from Eat, Drink, Man, Woman to Chocolat and many besides, foodie movies have their own place in popular culture. Now along comes a Swedish offering, Tuesday Club. Karen Marie Richardson and Sten Bjorn Kellman are about to celebrate their 40th wedding anniversary. They've invited friends over to mark the special occasion. Karen, who's a dab hand in the kitchen, has prepared some tasty dishes. And then, while Sten is skylarking outside, Karen makes a shocking discovery. Confronting him about it ends with Sten in a bad way in hospital after a fall. Understandably upset by Sten's betrayal, Karen bumps into a former classmate, Monica, Karina M. Johansson, whom she hasn't seen in decades. With an up-tempo, can-do disposition, Monica has led an interesting and varied life, having travelled and resided in many places. She's returned home to attend to her ailing 90-year-old mother. She invites Karen to dinner. Although initially dismissing the notion, Karen relents and is whisked off to a posh restaurant. It turns out the food there is being prepared by a Michelin star chef, who's also running a public cooking course on Tuesday evenings. In no time, Monica has signed up the pair of them, and they're joined by Karen's best friend, Pia, Susie Erickson. While Karen's first impression of the celebrity chef, Henrik, Peter Stormare, is far from favourable, that soon changes. Meanwhile, Karen and Sten's daughter, Frederica, Ida Engvall, is about to turn 40. Frederica is close to her father and can't understand why her mum has distanced herself from him. Written by Anna Fredrickson from her own best-selling novel and directed by Annika Appelin, Tuesday Club is a feel-good, comedic, romantic drama. While the roadmap is fairly transparent, the movie is an easy watch, the delicious culinary delights especially so. The best performers are the three female friends. There's a dignity about Marie Richardson. Karina M. Johansson has Joie de Vivre in spades, while there's an earthy quality about Susie Erickson. I can't say I was sold on the representation of incredulity by Ida Engvall, nor in the way the role was written. Neither did I believe there was chemistry between Richardson and Peter Stormare. Still, there's a friendliness and charm about Tuesday Club, which gives it appeal. Tuesday Club is best enjoyed if you simply let it wash over you and don't try to dig too deeply.